Dr. Linda Street is a board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialist and life coach who focuses specifically on physician negotiations. She's the founder and CEO of Simply Street MD Negotiation Coaching, found at simplystreetmd.com, where she helps female physicians take charge of their lives and negotiate for the salary they deserve. She lives and breathes to close the gender gap. She also hosts the Simply Worth It podcast, where she discusses physician contract negotiations. So we start out discussing how it's critical to change your mindset when you finish your training and you're going into your first negotiation. Because you've been the toilet paper on someone's shoe for the last decade, and now you're the prize. So negotiate like it. One of her main points is that you'll never know what you can get unless you ask. Negotiation isn't a zero-sum game where there's a winner and a loser. So there's no reason for it to be an adversarial relationship. It's about finding a way to work together. And it's critical to think about your priorities because it isn't just about money, although money is definitely part of it. A big shout out to two of my former co-residents from Georgetown, who I know are listening to the podcast. So thanks so much for listening. Melissa Amorn and Liz Guardiani, thank you so much. I miss you both. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. It's story time, brought to you by locumstory.com. Today we'll be reading Docs in Shocks. Some docs are overworked, as work works overworked workers weary. Some docs are overstocked, stopped as pandemic tick-tocks keep docs off clocks. If docs are in shock as the pandemic clock tick-tocks, then locums is the token to unburn the burnt-out broken. So how many clock tick-tocks must talk until docs tick-box and swaps to the spoken locum tenens token to unburn the burnt-out broken. Enough talks have, ticks have talked. The time is now and locums is how. Locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, mend to burnt-out ends. For more locum tenens information, go to drpodcastnetwork.com. Locum Story is your final destination. Dr. Linda Street, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here this evening. So let's go in chronological order for negotiation. So your first job out of residency, where do you even begin? Because for me, I ended up taking a job and I had no idea what I could negotiate. You're going to tell me all the things I did wrong. What were the levers I could pull? I joined a, a large practice and certainly there were larger practices. But I had no idea, and I ended up giving it to a lawyer who maybe negotiated some wording here and there, but they didn't really negotiate. They just tried to protect me from things like liability. So for those that are coming out of residency, where do you even begin? Right. And it's so funny because I'm going to start one step before all the things that you talked about, and then we're going to get there too. But I think the first thing is knowing that what you offer has value. Because when you're first out of residency, you've spent the last three to seven years being beat up, basically. Like people have made you their scut monkey. They have made you do all the tasks they don't want to do. They have told you there are 20 other people who want your job. And so suck it up. 
And you've just been in that culture so long that you're so excited for that attending job that no matter what they put on that piece of paper, it's a whole lot of money compared to PGY5, PGY4, whatever. And so knowing that you have value and it's a whole lot more than your PGY whatever salary and having an idea of what that should be by checking a bunch of different places. And we'll talk about some of them is one piece. The other piece is I hear all the time, well, it's just my first job. So I don't want to push too much. Well, newsflash as a physician, you bill exactly the same as a new attending as you will 20 years down the road. Your 99214 pays the same as it will when you're 20 years out. And so you being brand new doesn't necessarily mean you bring less value. In some ways, you're really up to date, the latest and greatest. You may not have that advantage of experience as far as being an attending, but you have a whole lot of experience as far as being a physician. And so I think the first thing is knowing your value, both from a no, I'm not just brand new and that's all I am. That doesn't define who I am and what I'm offering. But also the second piece is knowing what is market rate? What should I be making? And the worst thing to do there is to talk to your attendings because especially if you're going to go into a private practice, you're training in this microcosm of academia. And a lot of the faculty you have there have always been academics. Some of them will have some private practice experience, but unless it was recent, things have changed. And so making sure that the only people you ask about what pay you should get are not your attendings is, I think, a good starting spot. I actually talked to a client today. We were talking about when we both did this because that was the first thing I did. I got a job offer. I brought it to my attendings. I was like, hey, will you look at this? They're all like, oh, that's great. That's so much money. This is wonderful. No, it wasn't. It was like the 20th percentile. I'm like, what were you people telling me to take? But And I actually took an academic job. So this was apples and apples. But they like they only have that microcosm. And so while they can provide valuable help, don't use them as your only help. When I was in academic, when I was never an academic, when I was a resident, I remember the academic attendings would see patients two days a week, and then they'd have research, they'd have an admin day, they'd have their OR day, or maybe two, you know, day and a half in the OR. In private practice, I am four and a half days in the office and a half day in the OR. And no academic day, no teaching, no. So like the amount of, of revenue that we end up generating is very different. That being said, I'm not part of a hospital system where, you know, when I bring a case, that case brings revenue to me for doing the case as well as to the hospital for all of the fees they collect and all the imaging. So it's different in terms of the amount of revenue that, that you generate in for the institution in a similar amount of time. But yes, like we see in ENT, we are more efficient in the office than in the operating room. When we're in the operating room, there's there it just doesn't reimburse that well or as well. There's a lot of downtime because we do a lot of short cases. And so when you compare the two, the, the amount of revenue generated is very different. So if you were to show, you can't compare private to academics. Right, um, so, apples and oranges. So then where do you find those numbers? 
Yeah. There are a lot of places where you can actually get free data, which is always a good jumping off point. So Medscape publishes every year a range. Obviously this is survey data where people are individually answering the question. There's not a lot of standardization. So some people might include their bonus. Some people might not. We all know how much instruction and thought you put into surveys, usually just click, 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 click. So the data is not as clean, but it can give you kind of a big forest view of about what should an OBGYN make, about what should an ENT make. And then really looking at a couple different offers is also a really nice way to get free data on market. If you get three different jobs and you have the same skill set to offer, even in the same region, you're often going to end up with three very different contracts. So I've seen people with, say, first job out of residency positions in the same overall region of the country with a fairly similar job have a six-figure difference between what one pays and what another pays. So it can widely vary. And it's not always as simple as what do you get paid day one? So a lot of private practice contracts are often lower when you begin. So you may not make as much as you would working for corporate America healthcare the first year or two. But You may be able to get onto a partnership track where you get a certain proportion of what you earn, or you have more of an eat what you kill model where you get 70% of whatever you bring in or all of your revenue after overhead and make twice as much as that corporate employed doc. So it's not as simple as just the number that's straight on the page in front of you. And you really have to look at the whole package, but if you want like a jumping off points of, should I make 250 to 350-ish to start off or something kind of that level, then Medscape and a couple of different offers are a great place to start. Certainly there are a lot of paid data sets that collect more detailed information. It comes from W-2s, it comes from 1099s. So it's a little bit more accurate data and it's standardized. And that's like MGMA, AMGA, Sullivan Cotter. They all look for similar things. They have different clients. So you're going to have a little variation between them, but it's roughly similar. And those data banks are going to be a lot more specific. You can get data for your region. You can get data for other specific things, like especially things like family medicine with OB, without OB, urgent care, right? Like you can look at more specific things than like Medscape, which is just going to be like family medicine and it's one size fits all. So those paid databases, you can get more information and oftentimes you can access them at your library. So especially for trainees who are getting their first job, your academic library will often have a physical copy of these data data banks. Oh, wow. I was always under the impression that you needed to pay for them yourself or find someone who paid. And it's one of those things I pay for it every year it's expensive. It's quite an investment. So check out the library first. Worst case scenario, they don't have it, but most of them will have at least one of them. In your academic library, not your local public library. They probably don't have it. Exactly. (laughs) Local public library, I think has go dog go. Yeah. Those type of things. There was something that you, when you started out, you said it's important to know that how valuable you are. And I, I think it's important to highlight supply and demand, right? Because when you're going, when you're applying for medical school, high demand, right? And so there aren't many positions. When you're applying for residency, same thing. When you're applying for jobs, we're a guild. Like we, we keep our numbers low in order to keep the demand high. We don't want to flood the market 
with doctors. And we say it's for quality, and certainly that's part of it, but that isn't the whole story. So there is now, you have to change your mindset to, to recognize that you are now on the other side of that. And the supply of you is low, really almost no matter where you are. And the demand is very high. And so you need to, and yes, you're right. After being beaten down for about a decade, like it's hard to change that mindset, but it's, it's time for payback. You've earned it. Yeah. You're the talent. Yeah. I don't know if we're allowed to curse here, but it's the, I'm Brittany. I like to click the podcast button that says clean. Okay. So I don't have to, I refrain. But if we're going to start, we should just yeah. let it flow. So, we, we should make I'm that Brittany. decision now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then how do you start these negotiations without making it adversarial? Sure, Because these are people you want to work with. And I think the first thing to think about is a negotiation doesn't have to be adversarial. Like we have this mindset, that's what it is, that by default, that is what a negotiation is. I think most of us envision this tug of war, like you have this end, I have this end, let's pull until one of us has more of the rope. But really and truly, the definition of negotiation is simply a conversation with the goal of making an agreement. And we have those all the time. You have those with your patients to get your diabetic to take their insulin. You have those with your spouse to survive your daily life, especially in residency. You have those with everybody you encounter all the time. So this is not something you don't know how to do. This is not something you're new at. It's just flipping it a little different way. I think the second piece is really giving up that if I'm going to win something, someone else is going to lose. This is not like an infinite or this is more infinite. It's not a defined pie where if you get a, exactly. If you get a bigger slice, they're not getting a smaller slice. Like you could both win. And one of those things, I love personally productivity-based contracts because I'm really, really competitive. So for me, it's like super fun to get an extra RVU. Like, yes, saw an extra one today. I actually keep track at the end of each day of what RVUs I build to keep my employer honest. But um, so for me, production is really fun. There are other people that it tortures them. It is just not fun. So they don't like that. But one of the nice things about production is my employer and I are both winning the dollars per RVU that I'm being paid for everything I generate. They're billing a whole lot more than that. So the more I win, the more they, and those are more patients that I'm giving quality care to because what I do is harder to find in my region. And so everybody wins and it doesn't have to be either, or it can be both. And the other thing is even things like, well, how do we both win if I want to work part-time? So time is actually one of the things that I have the most conversations about because it's not just salary. Salary is a piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only thing really looking at how much do I want to work? How is it a benefit to my employer for me to work three days a week instead of five? It's a benefit to them because you're probably going to last in that job longer. Your turnover is going to be less probably. I mean, maybe not, maybe, but if you're in a job that is designed to fit you instead of squishing yourself into a job that isn't designed for you, you're probably going to last longer. You're probably going to be happier and more productive and more likely to stay, which is less turnover costs. So that's how they win, giving you a contract that may not otherwise look on first glance, like it's as advantageous for them. And so you just have to sell it to them that way. So you got to find a way to make them think that it's a good idea, right? Like you got to find what's important to you and important to them and find this middle ground, this negotiation. 
Right. And that's the first, that's what you said about finding something that's important to you. What do you want? So many of us go into our job search saying, okay, I'm going to be offered these different jobs and I'm negotiate salary. Okay. Well, that's fine. But what do you want your job to look like? If it doesn't match what the job looks like, see if you can make it match more. We can't all just sit martinis and work four days a week and work like two hours each of those days and make 600 grand. Yeah, there are only so many dermatologists. There are only so many available people to offer the skill set you have to that system that's looking to hire you or that group that's looking to hire you. So if for you, it's really important, say you're a morning person, you just like to hit the ground running and you want to be done to pick up your kids at school at 3 PM, they may be able to have a seven to three schedule. My office starts ultrasounds at 7 30 AM. So there's no reason why you can't adjust things like that. Even small changes can make a big difference in your life and may not make a whole lot of difference in their bottom line. So just be creative. So how do you know what's flexible and what's inflexible, what's negotiable and what's not, right? There's money. So we already talked about that. Like what are, this is how you research salaries in the area, but how do we know what other aspects are things that are one worth trying negotiating, not trying to negotiate and two, not immutable? Yeah. I think anything is negotiable until you're told now. And even then it may not be a real no. It might be a like sort of not right now. Yeah. And so Anything that's important to you and would make your life better in that position is worth at least bridging the conversation, like broaching it, saying, hey, this would be ideal if we could tweak this way. How do we make that happen? Well, I have an example for you. Let's say a practice is saying, we're looking for someone who's a real go-getter, someone who's going to be able to build their practice, someone who's going to be able to work hard to build their reputation in the area and make themselves available for their patients. And you're like, great. I don't do weekends. Right. That's not something that you want in your life at this point or maybe ever, right? And then you give them this sense that maybe you're not this, the go-getter they were hoping you would be. Right. So first off, that may not be a good fit if that is truly the most important thing for them and truly one of the most important things for you. So not every no is a bad thing. Every job that you go to try to negotiate, some of them, you're going to get through the process and decide, you know what? I really don't like how they responded to that. They were completely inflexible. They were very rigid. They were a little bit aggressive and not very nice. Maybe I don't want to work for these people. And that's valuable too. If that's not the case and it's simply, I really want this job, but they really want this, but I'd really rather have that. I think presenting how both of your goals could happen, where's that overlap? So having that little Venn diagram that we had in third grade science, and these are what I need, this is what they need, where's that center ground? And starting in that overlap zone to start the conversation. So in your example, I'm excited to get going. I can't wait to meet the referring doctors. I can't wait to go to local schools and talk to parents, whatever it is you're going to do to get yourself out there. I am eager Some of the parents I've talked to would really like to have their kids be seen by the doctor outside of business hours so that they can make those appointments or my patients might like outside of business hours. Would you be open instead of the schedule you currently have to maybe a four day a week, 10 hour schedule or whatever it is, but like looking at how can I serve their needs and accomplish that in a way that fits for me? Because to me, I would much rather work four tens than five eights. 
like that fifth, like those two hours, I'm already emotionally attached to the fact that I'm working this day. And I hundred percent believe all physicians should have a four day work week, but that's a whole separate topic. It is life-changing and has been the best thing I've ever negotiated much better than any hundreds of thousands of dollars. But when you decide what you want, like, how can I make this happen? So I'm by myself. I don't have partners and I work four days a week. Corporate America that I work for would really love me to work Fridays. I don't want to work Fridays. And I made it very clear that was a no-go. They'd rather have me four days a week than have me zero days a week. So we were fine. I don't work Fridays. Everybody wins. You hold the cards. It's just leverage. Yeah. How is it different when you're negotiating terms in your current job? Let's say either your contract is up or your contract isn't up and you're just thinking about the possibility of moving on or maybe you're seeing other people that are being hired in your field getting some benefits that you're not. How is it negotiating? Diff- how is what we were talking about any different when you're already in that job? Yeah, I think there are some things that it's easier because you already know their motives. You already know what their five-year plan is, what their goals are, what they're looking to achieve, how you fit into that piece of the puzzle for the most part, at least on a broad level. You know who you're working with and what the precedents are of what has been accomplished, what hasn't been yet. So you have some more data to start off with. What you have to create because you don't automatically have it as much is that leverage of you're already there. So that activation energy hasn't happened yet. So the dangling of the carrot doesn't feel like something they have to do. When you're renegotiating, they don't really feel like they have to dangle the carrot. So you have a couple different ways that you can create that need to give you what you need. And one of those things is to have alternatives, to be willing to walk away. If you have other contracts, this was actually, I negotiated a $65,000 raise in academics this way. I showed up and said, this person's willing to pay me this. I know you can't match it because it was not an academic job. Was it one of those postcards where it says you can move in a town by a lake a hundred miles from a major city? I wish. No. University campus? No. Okay. I went and um, interviewed for a job that I knew was available. I wasn't thrilled about it. There were many reasons why it was a bad fit. I actually had zero intentions of leaving for this job, but I was like, you know what? Let me see what's, I feel like they would have a hard time replacing me. So I don't think I'm going to be let go. Let me see where I can get with this. And I said, look, I know what my partner's making. My partner was making six figures more than I was because our salaries were on the state database. So I could look it up. He had seniority and some other things, but should not have been making 150,000 more than me, but he negotiated better than I did. First job out of fellowship. He was much more senior. And I had this job offer for significantly more than I was making. I think it was like, it was 130,000 more because they split the difference right down the middle. And I said, look, I know you can't meet this. And what that did was address the pain point because their first comment was going to be, that's not academics. And so I addressed that from the get-go. Look, I know you can't meet this, but what can you do to keep me here? Because I can't turn down $130,000 a year. And then magically, despite the fact that they can only give you a 10% raise without having to get board of regents approval or whatever it was, that was the BS they told me I got an 18% and they just changed how they looked at it. So some of my raise was actual raise. And the other part was a stipend for some bull, bull loney, um, sorry, <laughs> trying really hard not to curse, um, baloney title that they gave to me. So 
I made up a title that the job responsibilities were things I was already doing. And we called that that and I got a stipend for it. And so that was how we worked around the university rules that said you can only get a 10% raise or we have to go through the board or whatever. But I was at the end of the day equipped with somebody who was willing to pay me more. And had they called my bluff and said, okay, bye, I could have taken that job. And it may not have worked out long-term, but it would have paid a whole lot of money for a short-term and it would have been fine. If I was happy in my current position, then I think you just approach the conversation from a place of, okay, how else can you make this work for me? I think as long as you're collaborative and open, then you can move the conversation forward. How often can you pull that trigger though? Of like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to do it this time. I really mean it. Yeah, probably not often. That's like a one-time thing. And to be honest, the pay gap was so great that had they said, no, we're not giving you any more money, I would have started seriously looking for other opportunities. So that's one one way to do it. If you're like, you know what, I'm going to end my career here. This is where I'm going to be. This is where I want to be. I think saying, look, these are the things that I would like. How can we make them happen? And bring a list of things. So this is another place where it's helpful to toot your horn a little which we're not really great at doing. So a lot of times the people who are giving you money, especially in corporate environments are not even clinicians. So the people you're negotiating your salary with may or may not be a clinician, but letting them know, Hey, these are, this is the amount of revenue we brought in last month. Hey, we got a new referring doc to send us patients. We're busting into this market share. Hey, I did this wonderful thing. And it feels a little braggy and weird at first, But the more they associate you with being a person who does good things, because they're like, oh yeah, every time I talk to her, she's just exploding. She's bringing a new market share. She's got increased productivity. They're having more patients. They did this quality project, whatever it is that you shine in, let them know. Because if you don't tell them, they don't know. Nobody, especially an administrator, but even in a department full of clinicians, they're busy seeing their own patients. They're busy managing the practice. They're busy doing 5 million other things. They may not have noticed, oh, you tapped into this market share that had previously been hard to tap into. Or, oh, you're all of a sudden connected to XYZ group, which is going to send in patients. Or in a primary care environment, hey, you're somebody who now is doing the school physicals or whatever it is, anything you're doing that furthers the agenda of the group or practice you're working for is worth tooting. What about finding out what they want? Meaning like that might be more in in an academic position, but yeah, we've really been looking for someone to be on this and this committee. Like we can't find anyone to do it. All right, fine. If you give me X, Y, and Z, I'll head this committee for you. Rather than bringing to the table, these are the things that I also find out what it is maybe that they're looking for, that they're, what are their pain points? Yeah, because that's the other circle where you're trying to find that overlap. So the more you can present what you offer as a solution to their problems, the more you're going to get, the further you're going to go. Absolutely. Um, so let's say now a little different scenario, you're mid-career and you're looking for a new job. And it sounds like most of the things that we discussed really apply in any of these situations, but like you've already told us how you figure out your worth, how to tell them what you're bringing to the table and figuring out what you really want. So if you're mid-career, let's say you're moving across the country for something, all right, spouse, whatever. 
Is there anything that you're going to do differently? I think the advantage of being mid-career is you have a track record. So you can say, hey, this is a priority for you. I can help you do this. I've done this before. And one of the things you want to be paying attention to in your interview, when you're trying to decide what questions do I ask in an interview? Yeah, you want to know, are the schools good? Or do you like living here? Do you like your partners? Those things are all great. But you also want to ask questions that help you to negotiate. So the best thing is if you can plan that you want to negotiate before you interview, because when you're at your interview, you can say, where do you see yourself going in five years? Are there areas where the practice is growing? Are there areas where you've really not been able to grow as much as you wanted? Ask strategic questions so you know what they want so that you can most adequately position yourself as the solution to their problems. Because if you don't know their problems, it's hard to do that. And everybody wants to wear their shiny, this is a happy place, Disneyland face when you're interviewing. And so they don't want to unearth those things. And you don't want to walk in and put a bad flavor in people's mouth. It's what you say just as much as how you say it, or how you say it just as much as what you say. Sorry. And so you want to go in and instead of saying, what are the problem areas for this practice? (laughs) You don't want to start with that. (laughs) Outline the ways in which you suck. Nobody wants to have that conversation. So instead, if you can focus on how do you see yourself growing? Where are you hoping to be? That momentum, it'll unearth a little bit of what they're struggling with. It's going to bring that to light, especially if you keep asking multiple people, any themes are probably true. And it also redirects the conversation. And people like to talk about growth, especially physicians. We love to talk about where we're headed next, where we're going. We've thrived off of a arrival fallacy for the last two decades of our lives. So if you can ask people, where do you see your practice going? What are your goals? Where do you see the group going? What are the hospital's goals? Then you can get a lot of information on where they want to be. So you can use that as to how you can get them there. My biggest piece of leverage when I interviewed for this last job had nothing to do with anything other than the fact that I already knew all the referring doctors. So the person that they had who started the clinic or the people were rotating in from out of town. And so they could provide the clinical service that I was providing just the same as I could. But what they didn't have was those connections. They didn't have, I already know everybody in the community. My kids go to school with their kids. Like I can just waltz in and have those connections. That was my leverage. So I was able to get a lot more money and a lot more of the package that I wanted because I had that. So look for a reason why you have what they need different than just your clinical skill set. Right. Great. Any parting words for the audience? One last piece of negotiating secret for when you're waltzing into that, that negotiation. Yeah. Ask for the love of God, just ask for some things. (laughs) It's funny how our brains trick us of how it's so uncomfortable to ask for things. It's so uncomfortable to negotiate. Well, it's really uncomfortable to find out 10 months down the road, the other guy did negotiate and makes $50,000 a year more than you do. Oh, so that's a whole lot worse than the slight discomfort for a little while of having a conversation that they're expecting. People who are giving you employment contracts expect you to counter. They expect you to negotiate. It is part of the process. Yeah, it's a bonus if you just say, sure, I'll sign on the dotted line when they give you a crappy contract. But if you can ask for what you want, they expect that. It's not weird. It's not unusual. So go for it. Ask for it. And tell us where people can find you online. I'm at www.simplystreetmd.com. And tell us about the podcast. Oh, yeah. So, sorry. I have a podcast as well 
that is dedicated completely to negotiations called Simply Worth It. And you also do coaching, negotiation coaching for female physicians, correct? I do. So we have a group that we do group coaching and individual sessions for female physicians trying to close the gender gap and help you to advocate for yourself effectively. I have on occasion worked with male physicians and one-on-ones. They typically don't want to be in a group with all the women. <laughs> yes. And having listened to your, all of your podcast episodes, I can say the overwhelming majority apply to everybody. They are not female issue-specific negotiating tactics. So all of the episodes that I listened to that I really apply to men. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was fun to, a lot of fun talking to you beforehand and getting to know you better. And during the show, I do not plan on leaving my job anytime soon, but when I do now, I feel a whole lot more comfortable going into negotiations. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For doctors, the story has changed. Visit drpodcastnetwork.com slash locumstory for unbiased information about locum tenens and see if it should be your next chapter. And remember, locum tenens tends to trend as a godsend, men to burnt out ends. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.